Look at that. John's got the Bible open, and it's the large print version. <laughs> Try to tell me something. Okay. John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are all ready clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I worked you. So have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that you, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my, in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Lord God, we know you perhaps the best through each other. This is the great mystery of the gospel is that you have left and you have given your spirit to all of us and that we are the way that we see you that we see your will in each other's will, that we see uh, your face in each other's face, that we see your loving care in each other's loving care. <clears throat> so God, I just thank you for the community of the spirit, a community that persists and continues. God, may you bless everybody here in this, this strange and wonderful thing you call the church. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, none of you came today to hear a in-depth exegesis and exposition on John 15. I know that's why you're not here. So I could give the most rapturous, life-altering sermon. You will remember none of it in a week because you will remember those photos and you will remember these people because this is the church. Yet what we do on Sundays, week in, week out, to form this community is we proclaim the good word of Jesus. So that's what I'm going to do today. John 15, <clears throat> and I'm going to ask that we let the word of God have a different purpose than to simply be studied. 
that the word of God be here to hold us today. Because God's word will be faithful to hold us. And in their word, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they will be faithful to us to do everything they promise to do. So today is not a day to grow our brains. Today is not a day to know more or do more. Today is a day to crown Jesus with our hearts. That is what we get to do today. I've said the whole time we've been in this process, some of you are gathering around, you've seen it from another side, some of you are on our board, some of you have been supportive of Megan and I's ministry this whole time from the outskirts, some of our church hardly knows you. But we have said collectively, chin up, face forward, let's make the closing of this church awesome. Let's celebrate the beauty of the church as we close this church, but we exalt the continuing of the church. Citizens is a flower blossom on a plant as summer ends, right? We've used a metaphor of it's simply one fire in a sea and outposts of armies. We're putting this fire, we're pushing out the embers, we're going to sleep, we're scattering, we're going to the other fires, the other outposts that are raging, and the war goes on. You are all an amazing group of people, each and every one of you. Everybody on Zoom, you are all amazing people. Each of you has been instrumental. Thank you, Julio. Each of you has been instrumental in the life of this community. Whether or not you're still in Portland, whether or not you're coming here on Sundays, you have been instrumental. Sharing meals, planning late at night, dealing with John as he says, we need another meeting coming early week after week to practice and play. And you know what the crazy thing about all this is? This is what we love. This is what we love. This is what gives us purpose. This is what binds us together, serving the neighborhood, serving our cities, living here, doing life for some of us seven years together. This has been our constant, and I'm here today to say the constant continues whether you come here on Sunday or not. This church is closing, and the constant will continue. God is unfazed. Because how does the Bible biblically define an end? Think of every story of an end in the Bible. Every coming end is always laden with the messianic promise of hope. From the, from the journey out of Egypt into the promised land. From the promise of freedom from exile. To the period after our minor prophets close and we have this gap. It doesn't just go like straight into Matthew. You have this dark age where people were saying, I'm reading through here, I'm looking, I know that something is about to happen. A king is coming and then Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven on earth as he's crucified. And then he appoints and invites us 
to a new hope. And we now live in what I've called the fifth act of the Bible. We rehearse the Bible as everyone did before us, rehearsing these stories, learning them, living them out. We are writing the next chapters day in and day out as we wait in what Ellen eloquently called the now and the not yet. Knowing that all of our hope is for a one day hope in which everything will be realized, everything will be satisfied. So I could just riff all day long on this kind of stuff. But before we close, it wouldn't be John without a flair for the dramatic. So we're going to get into a good story. That's why we're in John 15. So let's get into it just for a minute. Raise your hand if you know the context for when the true vine passage happened. MDivs, you don't get to raise your hand until other people have raised their hand. When does this passage in John 15 happen? What's going on? when Jesus says, I am the true vine. Give me a sense of the story, somebody. John 15. Jesus is gathered with who? His disciples. In where? The, what we call the upper room. Jesus is in the upper room. And what has just happened and what is about to happen? Jesus has come back into Jerusalem and he is heading to the cross. It's the darkest of dark moments. The final 12, the followers of Jesus, have truly followed him. In many ways, they are right where they hope to be, right? In the words of Hamilton, they have always wanted to be in the room where it happens. And now they're in the room. And now they're in the room as the ship is going to sink. And they start to realize what this whole leadership game is all about. Jesus has chosen them to bring them into the room where it is darkest, to instill in them the hope that will get them through literally anything. Well, let's rewind. Rewind the tape a few weeks back. Jesus' life has been out of the frying pan into the fire. The first nail in Jesus' coffin was actually a resurrection. Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead. And especially in the Gospel of John, this is what makes the shift. We go John 1 through 12, John 13 through 21. They're like two halves. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead and people begin to conspire. The Jews begin to scheme. John lets us in. There is a plot to kill Jesus. Jesus's act of pouring out his life into Lazarus will begin the dominoes toppling for the end of Jesus's own life. So the sensible thing to do here as a ragtag band of revolutionaries would be to hide in a cave. But instead of hiding, Jesus leads the disciples into Jerusalem where the people love him, but everybody in power hates him. Some people are scheming. Some people are praising Jesus as king. Hosanna, we've got the olive branches. Some people are anointing Jesus like a funeral ceremony with the perfume. 
Everybody has a piece of the story. Something is becoming clear to them. Judas is starting to act a little cagey. Jesus is predicting his own death. And he's not running from it. He's heading toward it like it's a choice. But Jesus, I don't believe, is making the choice to die. This is important. I don't think Jesus has like an, an aching desire to die. But Jesus has a deep desire to do the will of the Father. So in John 12, Jesus tells his disciples, my prayer is not save me from this hour, but Father, glorify your name. And he says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus himself likens his life to the cycle of a plant. Jesus' desire was actually to live true to God, even if it meant the end of this life. Knowing that the season of his life was but a seed. All right, back in the upper room. Now we know where we are in John 15. In the upper room, every gospel begins with Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But in the other three gospels, it continues with them sharing a meal. Interestingly, not so in John. In John, right where the meal should be, we get this four-chapter discourse, they call it, a monologue in a play. The meal is Jesus's words. The Last Supper in John is a word dinner that they're all going to eat. They are going to eat the word, the word, the word. In every way, they live off the word. And so what Jesus is saying, and as much as he is when he serves the meal in the other Gospels, is if you eat these words, you will have my body and my blood for you, with you, and in you. And this is the way of his multiplication before he goes to seed. All this teaching, all this leading, all this death and resurrection is to go before the disciples, to go before his followers, to realize, model, and accomplish what he spoke to Peter earlier. Gospel of Matthew, he says, I'm doing this to build the church, right? The mission here is to build the church so that the gates of hell should not prevail against it. Jesus is obeying the Father, and the Father is working everything else out. Let that be a sign of hope for this community today. Let just this story just saturate, just sit in this story and realize that the, the, God knows we're limited. He knows we don't know the future. He asks to follow. 
and he will orchestrate the most amazing, insane, counterintuitive, upside down stories, which we will look back on and say, I can't believe I had the pleasure to live through that. Now that I can see what it really was. But of course, we don't have that benefit of hindsight right now. So we're gathered here today, we couldn't sleep, tossed and turned last night. I did, Megan did, Wendy said she did. Like, this is what we've done because we are in it. We're just in it, we don't know where everything is going. Imagine from the disciples' point of view what it looked like at this point in John. I just like flipped through the chapters. Bad news, bad news, bad news. And then John 15, kind of good news. Remain, abide, that's a good thing. Then bad news, prayer, bad news, bad news, bad news, worse news, abject failure is imminent, abort, 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 <laughs> glory. That's the story. That's the story of the gospel. And therein, the heart of it. Tossed and turned, which ways up, this seems like a disaster. Judas is like, that's because it is, right? Like. Who do we listen to? In the Bible, if you actually imagine with the characters and put yourself in there, there are so many twists and turns, so many brutal and dark looking alleys. And yet time and time again in the most dark of times, there are a select few who start stunning new beginnings. Are you in an ending or are you in a beginning? Where are you right now? You play a part in every season of every story. So I turn to John 15, not because it's the end, but because it is the eye of the storm. It is a turning point to a new beginning. And the root word, like the word you do a word study on in this chapter, is abide, remain. I'm going to read John 15, 9 through 10, just in the heart of the section here. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now, remain in my love. That's that abide word. I'm reading for the NIV, and it changed it for me, by the way, to hear it as remain. Now, remain in my love. You want to jump. You want to run. You want to do everything but remain as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. It's going to be one of the last few times I get to say these two words, citizens church. As we close this church, Seeking to follow God's will for his glory, remain part of the true vine of Jesus. Remain part of his community of the Spirit. At one of the darkest times in the Middle Ages, a woman named Julian of Norwich was tremendously significant in keeping the Christian faith a continuing presence in much of just utter darkness of the Middle Ages. And she was given a famous vision of Jesus in which she wrote, but Jesus, Jesus who in this vision informed me of all that is needed by me, answered just with these words and said, 
it was necessary that there should be sin. But all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. These words were said most tenderly, showing no manner of blame to me, nor to any who shall be saved. Is that how you hear the voice of Jesus? A voice that looks at you and says, here we are. It's all going to be well, and I don't blame you. The strength of the big C church, the worldwide church, that comes to each little C church, that's you and I here, stems from this unquenchable, undefeatable power of God. And the desire for us to answer by being faithful to his promise. So I just want to talk about three quick things in how we act out this faithfulness. This, I always have a series. We're in the third part, calling being the church for the world. We started with being appointed, that we're all leaders, that we're all invited to the feast. And how do we act as the grateful invited? And here I just want to talk about being loved and loving. What is all the power in Jesus' promise purposed solely to do? It is to love us. You might not have felt it in a vision like Julian of Norwich, but you can read it right here. Remain in my love. Okay. Got that centered? Now I want to talk about verse 1 through 4. Because sometimes you got to get the heart of it before you go and read all this other stuff. I am the true vine and the father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean. You're secure because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Megan, could you admit somebody on Zoom? They need to be admitted. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now, when you hear that from the context of being just utterly loved, I think it changes something about the verses. It changes something about the nature of the gardener and the vine and the pruning and all of this stuff. Somehow in his divine wisdom, God offers amidst the closing of this church his continuing deep love. And he says it's just to dwell, dwell, dwell in his love for us. It is not something we do, but it is something we accept, we remember, and we rehearse. This is the biggest thing when we talk about spiritual warfare, which we've done in this church. 
you gotta talk back with the promise. Usually in my preaching, there's a whole section, the application, right? There's a lot about our lives, our doing, what we should do, what we don't want to do. But somehow at the end, we always get to what Jesus did. I'm not going to stop that format anytime soon. What we do certainly matters. Annie Dillard was right, famous author, when she wrote, what we do in our days is what we do with our life. This is true. And as Christians, sometimes in our cheap grace, we write that part off. But what God has done through Jesus, our Messiah, is far more important and is the bedrock of all that we do. Just to be loved, loved, loved. To remember the character of God in Exodus 34, 6, when Yahweh says who he is, the Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. When we dwell, we realize his love, in the words of St. Augustine, is beyond my utmost heights, but also more inward in me than my inmost depths. In every direction you can go, God is deeper. You can't escape his love. So in some ways, our work is to take hold of what love is so beyond us as yet to be unreachable, but which is offered into reach by Jesus. And hold it, in the words of Tim Keller, like embers in our heart until it catches fire as a love that fuels deep within us. So we can interpret, as we have said here before, the facts with the truth. We have to be able to interpret the facts with the truth. Last week when we talked about being invited, we talked about being invited to a feast. Jesus gave these parables about being invited to different feasts and how we should act. But then he said, some of you are so concerned with how you should act, you, you actually miss the invitation to the real feast. You think that it's all about doing. But this, this feast that I'm welcoming to you is to just accept your belovedness, to accept your acceptance. And once you do that, then as Christians, we can do what is the thing that seems so difficult. And we'll do it without even doing it. Once we realize we are fully and truly loved by the king himself, we will be able to inhabit joy. So we've read verse 9 and 10. Remain in me. Remain in my love. Now let's read verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The remaining is to inhabit joy, to embody it. Jesus comes into this upper room and John writes that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. Now, how can Jesus love them to the end and leave them? Love them and leave them. Isn't that like the opposite of love? 
But Jesus, having loved them, loved them to the end. Now, even if you say, well, he, he died for their, John, come on, like he died for their sins. That's how he loved them. Then he like goes up on a cloud. He could have stuck around. But he says it doesn't work. The seed cannot die and produce new seeds unless I follow the Father's plan. This is the Father's plan. To the best of my knowledge, standing up here from where I'm at, it's Father's plan. Love them to the end. This love didn't end at Jesus' death, nor did it end at the disciples' death. Those are two ends. The ends of his life, the ends of their life. So the end here doesn't mean either one of those things. It means that he loved them fully, completely, without reservation, and that love lasted without him even being present. I was walking with some guys. We pray every Friday morning. I told a few stories from this group. They've been influential on me. One of them named Brennan said, hey, John, I just, before you go to your final service, I just, something's on my heart, I just gotta share it. He goes, I don't know how it's all going with you guys. This is how Brennan talks to you. I don't know, nah, nah. And he, but I was in a church that met at uh, a high school. It was my high school. And it was, it was never more than 30 or 40 people. Never really grew, never really took off. In so many ways, the most normal, just community of, there's nothing exceptional about it. The guy would bring donuts every morning. My friend invited me to it. And, and I just found that this became my family. They were faithful. They were joyful. They were a loving community. And then one day, they just decided it wasn't really working anymore. They had to stop. They had to move on. So I didn't realize the kind of impact that that had on me. But then we had this Holy Spirit conference at our church, and one of the instructions, I believe, out of that was to, to write a letter to somebody who made a really big impact on your life. So he did. He wrote a letter to this youth pastor who probably been years and years, maybe decades, or more. And he just wrote him and he said, you have no idea how this love lasted. It doesn't have to be exceptional, crazy, amazing stuff. It is to love fully and completely without reservations that is a lasting love. That lasts, guess what? In his life, Brennan's youth pastor, at this church still exists in spirit with him wherever he goes. This is what Jesus means. He loves them to the end so that his joy may be in them and that their joy may become complete and be a lasting love, a love that is everlasting, that can just pass on and on and on. You all possess a lasting love from this community, and you all get to inhabit that joy, and you have no idea what kind of impact you will make. I know it will be amazing, and there will be people in your life 
that God willing, maybe write you a letter one day. But you don't do it for them. That's the thing. You do it because in your life, there's all these loving people around you that have nurtured and have grown you and brought you into a place where you can inhabit joy. Pastor Rick McKinley at Imago Dei Church used this word. It was the first time, believe it or not, I had, I had heard it. He said, he talked about the church, but he didn't use the word church. He said an expression. He says, maybe there could be an expression there, right? What's an expression? This is the expression. When you gather a community of people who inhabit the joy of the Lord, they become an expression of God's love as the church. And this then empowers us to be humble, to be bold, to be courageous, to organize and reorganize, to be the scrappiest bunch of Christians there ever was. Because it's not up to us. Our job is simply to remain in his love. Christ alone sustains his church and the gates of hell will not triumph against it. So to inhabit joy means to, to remain in this everlasting life. To take Romans 8.38, neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ that is our Lord. To take that and just lock that in and go, that's my reality. I'm going to interpret the facts on the ground with the truth. After the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, there's this really weird line. He goes, blessed are, blessed are, blessed. We've got all those. We've got all the other stuff. And he goes, be perfect, therefore. Just be perfect. Does your heavenly father? Yeah, it's no big deal. Just like be perfect. Anyways, Jesus out, right? And you're like, per like what? I, okay, this guy's insane. Nobody can be perfect. What's going on? This is the kind of perfection that Jesus is getting at. Because when the meek, those who mourn, all of those things remain in his love and inhabit his joy, they can perfectly love as perfectly as they need to. Seth Godin is a marketing guru and business advisor. He has a podcast called Akimbo, which is a great listen. And he has an episode where he talks about perfection. He describes a woman, I think her name was Katie, whose life mission is to make the most perfect kilogram. So she has literally, this is a literally a real thing. She has taken him by the atom, made the roundest, perfectly, like weighs one kilo, and is shaving off, like working down to the atom to get the most perfect object, the most perfect kilogram, to reach perfection. And so... Godin says, what is the definition of perfection? Is that the definition? Is exactness the definition of perfection? Or he said, is it to perform to spec, as he called it? Now, hold with me for a minute. Let's take another example. Uh, a great example of that kilogram in the modern world is in our food system. We have crops that we grow perfectly. We grow them in perfect, regular rows, right? We spray the same stuff, we neutralize the soil so everything's perfectly the same. We do it with the same exact regiments everywhere. We run the harvesters that have perfectly spaced arms. Everything is perfect, right? 
Now, let me give you another paradigm. We have regenerative agriculture. Every, you go to a farm, have you ever, ever been to like an organic granola crunchy farm? Sometimes you're like, how do you grow stuff here? There's like weeds everywhere. There's stuff like you're picking the tomatoes out of other plants, you know, like you're like, what is, how does this work? No, they're like, no, it's perfect. It's totally perfect. Everything here is performing exactly as it should be. The earth is happy. We're happy. The plants are happy. It is perfectly performing to spec. And he says, what then if we say the, the example of perfection is not preciseness so much as it is the idea of being truest to one's being. Truest to one's being. I don't know if you have the slide, the iPod up, and you can move to this example, but Christian artist Makoto Fujimori, Fujimara, sorry, talks about this Japanese idea called wabi-sabi. This came up before church started, and my kids looked up, and they go, Dad, wabi-sabi. I was like, what the, what are they teaching you guys? I mean, I was proud, but I was like, what are you? Wabi-sabi, which acknowledges three realities in the Japanese tradition. Nothing lasts, nothing is finished, and nothing is perfect. But that is the spec of wabi-sabi. So Makoto talks a lot when he's doing his sort of art theology lectures about this ceramic concept called kintsugi. In kintsugi, they capture the essence of being true to being by taking a perfectly made pot, breaking it, and then putting it back together with gold leaf in all of the cracks. It's a perfect bowl. It is true to its being. It is made truer to its being because it is mended. This is a much more interesting bowl, is what Wabi Sabi says, than the original ceramic pot. This bowl tells a story. This bowl has a history. What this reveals actually to me in my humility, perhaps I'm wrong about this from the art world, is that in saying that nothing lasts, nothing is finished, and nothing is perfect, and yet achieving perfection by pouring in the gold and healing the pot, it is showing that there is one who is perfect. God's love is the gold. God's love is the gold putting that pot back together. So Kintsugi becomes this visual metaphor that at the deepest source of our mourning is the seed for celebration. That our, in our impermanence, we actually have opportunity to showcase God's permanence. Do we get that? That in our brokenness is when we can point to the one we remain in and say, there is one who is always good, always true, who continues, who goes on. I remain in him, though I am imperfect. And Christ's healing of our brokenness produces this fruit that will last, this joy that is complete. So we, have, we looked at these photos this morning. Some of us have memories we would maybe rather not remember. 
Sometimes the reason we get choked up is we realize how much something meant and how much it wasn't the way we imagined and how much it is. We're struggling simply with acceptance. But remaining means as shards of our pot have fallen off, letting God's grace redeem it all in time. I can speak for myself to say that God grew me here, perhaps more than he ever could if it had been a raging, quote, success in Godin's performance of perfection, right? If it had gone to my spec, would God have, would God have been able to do what he needed to do with me? Or actually has it gone to spec? That's a good question. Sit with that. Has Citizens Church gone exactly to spec? Couldn't be more perfect. You go, oh, John, come on. But sit with it. Because if we in this moment can be loved, inhabit the joy, then we have a kind of lovingness that is impossible for anybody to stop. It's impossible. It doesn't come from a source of success, affirmation, worldly comfort. It doesn't come from any of that stuff. And I can go continue, chin up, look forward, inhabit joy, love. Susan Eastman, maybe we could say there's heretical here, but Susan Eastman is in the mainline Protestant movement. We're all good evangelicals. We can't listen to them, right? No, she has plenty of amazing things to say. She talks about a man called Stanley Harawas. Stanley Harawas is known as being one of the most foul-mouthed Methodist theologians that there is. She was explaining an admirable Christian to Stanley and he said, yes, but are they blankety blankety blank happy? Right? Are they, are they, are they blankety blankety happy? They can do whatever, they can be whatever, are they inhabiting joy? Are they not just a servant of God anymore, as the text says, but a friend of Jesus, a brother or a sister to Christ himself? So as we set out today, as we set out in a way that we will never come back to, can we be loved, inhabit joy, and go loving, knowing that nothing is missing that needed to happen. Everything is complete. And then we can embody the words of adventure that God gives to anyone in the Bible when he sets them out. Think of what the Lord said to Abram. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land. I will show you. I will bless you and make your name great. Think of Noah before rain was even a thing who is instructed to build a boat in faithfulness. Go through Hebrews 11, just go through the whole thing. Those people were able to have a sense of adventure because nothing was incomplete. They were in the midst of the total completeness of the kingdom story. Verse eight of John 15, if you're new to this, I preach out of order all the time. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Then continuing on in verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. 
Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everyone, everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Everything, that's a total statement. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Fruit that will last. So that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. You're thinking, what fruit am I gonna go produce that will last? John told me I need to go some, you've already translated that way. You've produced the fruit that will last. You've already done it. Well done. We are sitting here having produced lasting fruit. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So simple. We make it so complicated. Love God, love neighbor. That's it. In that lies everything. What does Jesus tell you? You're a Christian. Why are you a Christian? I love God and I love my neighbor. How does that work? Let me show you. See my life? It's complete. Whoa. What? My life's very incomplete. How is yours complete? You're, you're actually, in fact, if I was honest, you're not doing as well as I am. How are you complete? I'm complete. I'm complete. This is what becoming perfect means. So the end of all of this brings us to the beginning. That at the end of the day, loving God, remaining in his love, and loving others means crowning him king in all times, including today. Including today. Our deepest mourning is in the words of musician John Lucas, to crown the risen king. We can do it anytime, anywhere. I listened to this song in our playlist on Monday night of this week. Actually, Megan is masochist or sadist, or whatever you call it. She handed me this song and she goes, here, listen to this. I was already not doing great, you guys. And she's like, listen to this. And I just like blubbered, like it was just, it was bad. I really listened to it and I just weeped because John Lucas writes in the spirit of Ecclesiastes 13, as I believe, Alan, you mentioned, or somebody mentioned this morning, that there is a season for everything. To everything, there is a season. So just sit with me as I close out with this short song. Remember all of the seven years and let God hold it all with his word. There is a time to dance on sorrow and a time to kiss her cheek. There is a time to mourn in silence, but justice aches to hear you speak. And I don't know the end or tomorrow's story, but I have found the one who gives me rest. And I will make my bed in his promises, for he holds true when nothing's left. When nothing's left. There is a time when laughter will echo through your halls of peace, but war is known to change your locks and carry off the family keys. There is a time for healing and pain, a time for drought and a time for rain. There is a time for everything until we crown the risen king. 
until we crown the risen king. So crown him in your mourning, crown him in your laughter, and crown him when it all turns dark. Crown him when you bury, and crown him when you marry, and crown him when your faith finds a spark. Crown him for he's faithful, crown him for he's worthy, and crown him for he is good. Crown him for his promises, cut through the blindness, children that have barely understood, the beauty that has come, and the beauty yet to come, and the beauty that is yours and that is mine, and that death produces life, and that we are all made alive by the king who paints beauty with time. The king who paints beauty with time. That means if all of this is true and all of this is complete and God is who he says we, he is and we are who he says we are, then in 5, 10, 20 years, we will look back and realize his promise was all more true than we ever could have known. So let's celebrate, even in our sadness, in the deepest recesses of our mourning, let's crown the risen king who says, I am the true vine. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Now remain in my love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. You are no longer servants, but friends. Now go love one another. Go love one another. So that's what we're gonna do. What better way to do that today as we close? What better way than to love one another, to announce by loving one another that the gates of hell cannot stand against Christ's church. So at communion, I'm actually giving you permission today to tell the devil to go to hell. Your pastor just told you that. Tell the devil to go to hell. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.